This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. I'm Robbie Greenfield and alongside me is Chris McCarty and Sona Rapani. Working our way through the years, we'll highlight world events, cultural achievements and the stories that have been forgotten. Let's go to these little quirky stories from, wait a minute, 45 years ago. That's where we're at. Okay. 45 years ago, 1976, okay? Now, this was the year that an extraordinary book called The Encyclopedia of World Problems was published. <laughs> this is something I could see you opening up and getting well oh, into. It. Just kind of, you know, mumbling to yourself like, yeah, right on. Uh, yeah, you know? right on. If you really want to like bask in some negativity, yeah, exactly. you open up The Encyclopedia of World Problems. It was a weighty tome. It deduced, and I'm not sure where they got this number from, but they did, that there were precisely 1,653 problems of a global scope, and these were embedded in a network of 13,764 identified relationships. Oh, wow. Okay, it was 1,200 pages in length. So it was fair to say that back in 1976, there were plenty of problems knocking around, and it was a joint effort over a four-year period between two Brussels-based NGOs, the Union of International Associations, and something called Mankind 2000, (laughs) which sounds like a droid from a Terminator film. Terrible band. Yeah, indeed. It was a very complex publication. Let me give you an example. There was one category, subcategory, earmarked human diseases, and it featured a total of 78 entries that also had 698 (laughs) (laughs) cross-references. Compiling the massive data proved to be a problem in itself in this book of world problems because the editors found that their work was hindered by the inability of organisations to accurately document the extent of the problems which they were supposed to be overseeing and they were concerned with. So in other words, the people that were creating, that were maybe in charge to employed with solving these problems weren't doing a very good job at bookkeeping. (laughs) This is one of those things where if you were to write this book of world problems today, I mean, would you put Greta in this? There'd be more. There'd definitely be more than 1,653. You think? I think it's gone up in 45 years. I think we should set Robbie to the task. I yeah, think he uh, would just love that. I reckon back in back in those days, there were fewer problems. Yeah, as the world has globalized, it's just gone through the roof now. It's gone through the roof. There'll be millions. Millions of problems. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do it. You'd, you'd need a volume. You'd need, you'd need numerous editions of the same book. Yeah. Mm. Well, fortunately, this was a one-time only. It was special, a one-time only it? special. Yeah, they, they actually led the editors to ultimately ponder the question as to whether a healthy, productive society needs a minimum number of problems to provide adequate challenges and stimulus. In other words, they concluded that we are incapable of living in a problem-free world, a problem-free society. Of course, we are. Stating the bleeding obvious, as you would say. Mm-hmm. Can I have that one for free? Song? Yeah. I mean, is that the but most what, obvious statement? That means that problems are a good thing, despite Obviously, being problematic. Can you imagine living? It'd be Stepford Wives. Hmm. There are enough movies about a perfect world and how weird that would be. It'd be boring. Right? You need a couple of problems, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> you need a couple, just not 1,653. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, this is actually a story that it, it launched in 1976, but it's, I checked up on it. There's still remnants of it that are still existing today because in 1976, as part of America's bicentennial celebrations, the residents of Lake City, Pennsylvania, raised $6,000 to build a UFO landing port. <laughs> Explained Jim Meader, 
the businessman who organised the effort, he said, we said to ourselves, let's not look back 200 years, let's look forward 200 years. Everyone else is restoring railroad depots, all that sort of stuff. We wanted to do something a little bit different. So they built a grass-covered mound. It was five feet high, 100 feet in diameter. It was bordered by red and blue lights. I'm not sure where they got that from, as to say that would be where UFOs would gravitate towards. Um, And the representative of the Tucson, Arizona Aerial Phenomenon Research organization checked it out and approved said yeah like the look of that that's good yeah. <laughs> the, the aliens will know exactly where to go exactly they're going to see those red and blue red and blue flashing lights and they'll know now a few years ago someone checked back on it it still exists yeah, in, in lake city the lights still uh, i'm not sure if the lights still work but uh, the slight update is that um it's yet to receive its first ufo <sighs> There we go. 45 years. How but they've still disappointing. Got, they still have time. According to Jim, they've still got another 155 years to go. Well done, Rob. So you never have, know. Stranger yeah. things have happened. Indeed. I did that in my head as well. I didn't even use a calculator <laughs> for that one. 1976. You know where I'm going with this, don't I you? I do know exactly, and I'm hoping you've got a tune there for us. Uh, kind of. It's got one of the best backstories of any film, Rocky. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this show, so we're covering old ground to an extent when we talk about it on the time capsule. But it was inspired by Sylvester Stallone himself watching a Muhammad Ali fight. I think it was Rumble in the Jungle, in fact. And um, he took, he had $106 in the bank. It's a well-told story, this, Sylvester Stallone. He spent 84 hours writing the script. Originally... It was slightly different. It ended up with Rocky throwing the fight and opening a pet store for Adrian with the money he made. That's the original script. That's um, that's how it ended. Of course, he was insistent on on starring in the film himself. They, the studio, United Artists, offered him three hundred forty thousand dollars to sell them the rights to the screenplay if he agreed not to star in the movie. They were after someone like James Caan or someone like that. And then, when the budget was lowered to a million dollars, the studio was no longer allowed to keep Stallone from starring in it. So he got his wish. He was paid $20,000 for the script and a minimum of $350 per week for acting and just some of the dialogue. It was brilliant. Rocky, do you believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Apollo Creed does. And he's going to prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. I need your help about 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, you never helped me. You didn't care. Well, if you wanted help... I say, if you wanted help, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you just ask me again? Look, I asked, but you never heard nothing. Brilliant. And When's remember, the last time you watched it? Oh, oh, during lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, we had a little bit of a rocky fest. And you know the big thing about it as well? I don't know if anyone would agree with this. But when I was a kid, I was obsessed. Because remember the scene where he jumps over the park benches and he's got the kids running after him? Yeah. You know that famous scene? Mm-hmm. So me and my mates would try and jump over park benches. Do not try that at home, by the way. It ended up in a couple of tears. But it was just it was an amazing movie. And then number two was great. Then you had Mr. T, B.A. 
Barakis for number three, and then of course Ivan Drago in Rocky Four. It became very commercialised then. It wasn't winning as many as awards, if any at all. But yeah, the Rocky franchise—it's mm. an amazing one. It really yeah. is. One last fact for you: Rocky and Adrian visited the skating rink after it was closed for budgetary reasons. Everything was done on a shoestring. You remember that famous scene, yes. Chris? Mm. Originally, they wanted to have a date during the operating hours, but it would have cost so much money to pay for the extras, people to skate around them, that they decided to go to it when it was abandoned or, you know, Cold. empty, closed. And they had the wrinkles themselves, and it probably made for a better scene, ultimately. Uh, the other film that came out this year that won critical acclaim and was just widely hailed was Taxi Driver. Mm. Um, Robert De Niro himself, who'd broken through in Godfather 2 a few years earlier, said that it was a movie they would still be talking about in 50 years. And 45 years later, it's still hailed as one of Martin Scorsese's finest works. It was an unsettling masterpiece. That's how it was described by critics. Take a listen. Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. Taxi Driver, a film by Martin Scorsese. People do anything in front of a taxi driver. I mean, anything. People want to embarrass you. It's like you're not even there. It's like, you know, like a taxi driver doesn't even exist. This city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. Now, indeed, there's a reason why it was so... There was so much rubbish lying around, in, and they wanted to create that that kind of urban sort of squalor, that kind of idea of this sort of city in decay. New York was, was in decay in the yeah. 1970s, yeah. especially in the summer of 75 when it was shot. The film um, sanitation workers were on strike, and they'd left piles and piles of garbage on the sidewalks and the streets. Yikes. And that just added to the atmospheric, that sort of really kind of toxic kind of atmosphere of the film. Have you seen it? Absolutely. New York City, just as a portrait of New York City, it's just changed so much that you oh. think of its gritty past, even in the 80s or in early 90s. Had a massive crime problem at the time yeah. as well, and it went through a, a rejuvenation period, which saw it become the, the, the kind of global icon in terms of tourism, etc., that, that it is today. But yeah, Taxi Driver is a haunting portrayal. Jodie Foster, I think, was she 12 in it, 12 or 13? Yeah. She's incredible. I think she might have been... Was she she was 12. Best Supporting Actress. I'm not sure. Serves me. She was certainly nominated. Yeah, very good movie. Robert De Niro's incredible in it. Uh, one of Arnie's big breakthroughs, Stay Hungry, 1976 American comedy drama. Arnie essentially plays himself. He plays an Austrian bodybuilder called Joe Santo, who is training to compete in the Mr. Universe competition. So he's, playing he's playing himself. He won a Golden Globe for Best Acting Debut in a Motion Picture. I, wanna, I want us to be the judges of that, though. This is a little clip of Arnie's dialogue in the film. Are we really giving it a Golden Globe for acting? I don't know I where she is. You. And even if I did, I still wouldn't tell you. Why, because you want it for yourself? Now you're talking about something you don't know anything about. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, that got a golden globe. Yeah. Stay hungry. Tough to be fair, year. that could have been any one of his movies you there. Need, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, need to, you need to look that up though, Chris. It's part it's a missing well, part of your to, Arnold Schwarzenegger canon. I need to get on it. So far, so good. The fact that we discussed Rocky means that this is already getting five stars for me. Yep. What about the music? Let's uh, check out the 1976 song that ultimately would win the Grammy for Record of the Year the following year. It was this.
fan of that song? You know, this is one of those songs that I have to say I don't love, but every time it comes on, you can't help singing along. You know what? I'm kind of with you. My yeah. mum would be shouting blasphemy at the radio if she was listening this evening. She is, and I've said it before, a massive Eagles fan. But I'm kind of with you on that song. Yeah, it's nice. When you turn it on, I'll listen to it. Does it blow me away? No. Okay, Sorry, Rob, have I just burst your balloon there? Not, not at all, no. I'm, I'm a bit ambivalent towards it as well. Yeah. I enjoy the Eagles. I can listen. They're very easy listening. I can stick them on. I can have them on in the background. Um, I do appreciate the guitar solo. Joe Walsh and Don Felder played, it, played basically their guitars together to create that kind of merged sort of solo. It was very intricate, very well done. We actually featured it when we did yeah. a countdown of the best guitar solos um, a few weeks back with, uh, with Roger, who was, who was in on that. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm kind of with you. I'm kind of with you, but it did. It won the Grammy for Record of the Year. The following year, in 1977, this song, oh my God, if this came out now, there would be so much controversy. And I think there was quite a lot of controversy at the time because Bob Dylan basically went after a, a, a legal case involving a boxer called Reuben Hurricane Carter, yes, did, yeah. who spent 19 years in jail for a murder that Dylan felt he did not commit. It's a great song, this. The lyrics are unbelievable. Take a listen. Reuben Carter was falsely tried. This is a real-life case mm-hmm. involving, obviously, Reuben Carter, two criminals by the name of Arthur Bradley and Alfred Bello, who he name-checks in the song. Yeah. And they had criminal records. They were en route to rob a factory when they witnessed the shooting, and they name-checked Carter and another fellow by the name of Artis as the killers. And Carter was sentenced to 30 years to life, just like that, with almost no further investigation necessary. And Bradley and um, Alfred Bello got reduced sentences for their crimes as their role in, as witnesses. So Dylan went after them in the song. There's uh, a fantastic piece. If you are interested in, in know, knowing the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, uh, there was an amazing long read piece on the BBC actually quite recently. I would say to you, Sonzi, get on it because even you don't have to be a boxing fan because the story is just so tragic. I believe, forgive me if I'm wrong, but Reuben Hur- uh, Hurricane Carter, I think he actually died quite recently and the BBC did an incredible article. It is well worth digging out and uh, reading up on his story because it's an incredibly tragic one there's a film as well isn't yes, there, there is. mm. yeah play who is in it again will smith or am i thinking muhammad ali is it samuel jackson i think it is samuel L. jackson I'll double check that but yes there is a movie out as well incredible we'll get on that Uh, this was a great song in fact this is actually freddie mercury's favorite queen song okay any guesses to what it is Uh, well you can see it so we're not going to play what it is we'll give it a play
Certainly one of his best vocal performances. Oh. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Queen, I mean, I've said it to you since working with you, Rob. Banging on about them, of course. <laughs> and Father Greenfield. And then right, Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie. I came yeah. out of that and was obsessed with Queen for about two weeks after yeah. watching And you, that you weren't that much of a fan beforehand? I, like I was, but yeah, now. So, like so. passive fan, right? Kind of, whereas now I would consider myself a bit of a, yeah, Queen lover. A boy. Queen tragic. Yeah, a little bit. Peter Hintz, who was lover the head boy, so of Queen said <laughs> lover boy. Yes, well, Barney. I said Queen lover boy on National <laughs> <laughs> Don't know where it came I from. was prepared to let it go because <laughs> there is a song. She just mouthed to me, Lover Boy. Yes. Yes, or no. I'm a queen Chris lover McCarty, boy. who last week felt like a natural woman, is now a queen lover boy. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I let it go, too. I just mouthed it to him, and he's the one who called it out. Yeah, you know yeah. what? You call he called, he called himself out. Yeah. That's brave of him. Yeah. Now, this song's going to divide opinion. I'm not a fan, personally, but this is obviously a very popular song, and it also became the world's first Europop disco hit. Take a listen. Boy. I was going to say, would you call yourself a dancing queen as well? Uh, no, I would not. Adding to your list it. of titles. The fact that Robbie should call me lover boy. Genuinely, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just vomiting in my mouth for that, Robbie. Never again. Sona can call me it. You cannot call All me right. lover boy. Uh, am I a dancing queen? No, Sono. I am not a dancing queen. Despite what you may The working title of this song was not Dancing Queen. It was Boogaloo. Was it? Yeah, apparently. Which is awful. Even more awful than Dancing Queen. <laughs> I'm not a fan of it. I'm going to say that right now. Do they right at now. any point sing Boogaloo? I don't know, actually. Yeah. Um, it was the only one of ABBA's 14 US Top 40 hits to make it to number one. So clearly some people liked it. There were a lot of people that did enjoy that song. We played you a little earlier, Boston's More Than a Feeling, which was a surprise hit in 1976. I want to get to this. This is very timely. This has to be, I know he's a big Barry White fan. <laughs> this is also a, another one that Chris McCarty would roll out on a romantic evening in. Off your shoes and sit right down Loosen up that pretty French guy Wow. Oh dear. Just picture myself. It's <laughs> <laughs> the lover boy in action, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, Rod Stewart. Need you to be thinking about me in any sort of action. Thank you very much, Robbie. You put it in my head. Nothing I can do about it. You keep your thoughts to yourself. All right, okay. That's, of course, Rod Stewart, um, who persuaded his then girlfriend, Britt Eklund, to sing the French part of the song at the end. And uh, when asked, Rod was asked whether she got paid royalties, he said, No, I bought her a new frock. Did he? Yeah. So he, t- he took umbrage at that. Could have been a little bit more generous yeah, there. a little bit Rod. more. Um, this is one of his favourite live songs to play. It gets more plays than in his concerts than every other song he's done, except, of course, the, we know where we're going with this, Chris, 
Maggie May. Oh, Maggie May. Road Rage Maggie May. Road Rage Maggie May. Um, now, I, I can get on board with this next one, okay? Uh, again, not, uh, not expected to be a hit. In fact, at the time of this song's success, Billy Ocean, who produced it, wrote it, was quoted as considering himself the most surprised person in the world that this song became a hit. It was his 10th release, and he got to the point where he assumed all of his records would be flops until this one. this over ABBA any day of the week. 100%. I feel like I'm at a wedding in this. You know, it's like 11 for Ties are the head. <laughs> You're not a fan of this, though, no, are you? Not really feeling it. So little stony face. No. Oh, dear. She's waiting for the more modern stuff. Yeah. Uh, she's not going to get no, it in 1976. I, I can get behind the next one. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can as well. Yeah, yeah okay. And we've got the dance version of it as well. We do. We're, oh. we're going to play both versions and you can decide which one you prefer because, of course, it is The Four Seasons, Frankie Valley, and it's this. You are a fan, Chris. I call it up. I'm getting yeah. partial. Yeah, definitely like it. There's a great uh, musical about them too. Jersey, Jersey Boys. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Really good. Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And in 1994, here we go. Now a we're dance talking. remix by Dutch producer DJ Ben Liebrand. <laughs> ben Liebrand. Ben Liebrand came in. <laughs> came into became a hit. It debuted at 14 in the US charts, and it stayed there for the top 40 for 20 weeks. Do you prefer it? That's the big question. I've clipped a little bit about My sister, this was peak adolescence. I was a little young kid. I was just swept along with this one. Play it, Rob. Now, Valley himself did not like it. He said he never liked it better than the original because it lost all its purity. And I kind of agree with him. I can kind of feel that, even though this is probably the one I heard first. Okay, yeah, And the reason too. I like the song, because, you know, yeah, obviously 1994. Yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, I do agree with that. All right, this is also from 1976. Bit of Elton John and Kiki D.
There's only one place to start, Chris, on the sport of 1976 in the time capsule, mm. and that's in the realm of gymnastics. Yeah, 1976 Olympics, a certain Nadia Comaneci just dominated. Dominated. Absolutely dominated the floor, the beams, the, the vault. Uh, take a listen to this, her first, I think, perfect ten. Well, that crew looked absolutely faultless. She brings gasps from the crowd every time she does that somersault on the one bar and the full twisting somersault between the bars. She's got that lovely original dismount. And another ten for Kominex. Absolutely faultless every time she's on this apparatus. The interesting story to this is that the Olympic scoreboard manufacturer, Omega, had been led to believe that competitors could not receive a perfect 10 and had programmed the scoreboards to display the maximum of 9.9 so when Comaneci scored 10 it appeared as 1.00 because it was the only means which the judges could indicate that she'd received a 10 that's amazing what a scramble that must have been behind the scenes yeah yeah massively yeah massively um Better than Simone Biles? Oh, I mean, Simone Biles, I mean, it's moved on, hasn't it? All sport has. It's more athletic today. I mean, Simone Biles, I would say, is explosive. I mean, when she does something, it's like, wow. Whereas Nadia, it's ballerina. Yeah, a bit more like a, a ballerina in a lot of ways. Mm. She, she kind of, she embodies more of the, the gymnast, as you would kind of traditionally think, the broad brush strokes. Whereas Simone Biles, I mean, she's all power. I mean, what she does is the... The, the, the jaw drops yeah. Simone Biles to be brutally honest with you but Nadia Comaneci she did she made history I've actually been trying to get her on this show watch oh, this wow. space okay we're trying to get yeah. Nadia the other big name from 1976 Antonin ah Penenka it is the man that scored the first Penenka penalty that's right the chipped penalty which won the Euros the fifth UEFA European Championships. It was Czechoslovakia who beat West Germany on penalties following a 2-2 draw. And it was Antonin Panenka, whose delicate chip won the country their first and today only European Championship title. How about mm-hmm. that? What, what nerve. Solid year. What nerve to do something that no one had ever done before yeah. in a European final. Yeah. Wow, that is... When there's so much at stake, that's when you're going to try that out. That is crazy. So we, we do an off-script salute to Antonin Panenka. That was 1976. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to the Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.